Hi, I'm Sue and you're listening to Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. Hey, I'm Tara Morgan. I live on Vashon Island in Washington, founded Seize the Oar in 2013, and am fanatic about coaching Learn to Row. Plus, I believe the pair is the best boat. And I'm Rachel Friedman. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm the owner of Row Source, the founder of the Alliance of Women Rowing Coaches, and I can't row a single in a straight line. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience. Here at Steady State Podcast, we are fascinated by backstories, the real-life experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. From indoor rowing to flatwater masters to coastal and ocean adventurers, we celebrate you, who represent the global humanity of our sport. Together, we disrupt and expand the narrative about rowing culture. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're coming back for another episode, thanks so much for being here. During this season of Steady State Podcast, we're dedicating a multi-part series to heart attacks, emergency preparedness, and response. We'll hear first-hand accounts from rowers who survived heart attacks, teammates and coaches who witnessed these events, and even from widows who reflect on warning signs and what-ifs. We've also tapped Tom Rooks, U.S. Rowing's Director of Safeguarding, for top tips that coaches, rowers, and teammates can all use when there's an emergency on the water or around the boathouse. Steady Seat Podcast is sponsored in part by Amy 5 Investors. We're also really excited to announce our newest sponsor, Live to Row Studios, where rowing is for everybody. And expert coaches lead live indoor rowing classes and training camps every day of the week. Get in touch with a coach for your free introductory session at live2rowstudios.com. Thanks also to our patrons for your support. My name is Sue Houghton. I learned to row in 1973 at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I've also rowed for the Vesper Boat Club and uh, the national team. And I currently row with the Sacramento State Aquatic Center Capital Master Crew. Today, I'm basically a rower and kind of consultant on our team. When I'm not doing rowing-related things, I'm doing so much that I don't know why I said it all. And sometimes I've been retired before nine years from my profession as a pediatrician. I'm involved with the Boy Scouting, including the new Girl Scouting program that is embedded within the Boy Scout program. I'm somewhat involved with the swim team my husband used to coach and a couple of different hiking groups and enjoy spending time with my grandchild. You are busy. That's fantastic. And I know I saw you last at the head of the Charles. With which group did you compete? Yes, that's one of the teams I belong to with the 1980 Rowing Club. We won the, I don't even know the name of the category, veteran, old, oldest ladies, whatever, but we did average above age 70 and and won that race. 1980 Rowing Club is basically a collection of mostly former Olympians. Most of them were on the 1980 team, which you'll recall was boycotted by President Carter. So I was not on that team. I had retired and was attending medical school, but they're all my buddies. And most mm. of them have been coached by my late husband at Vesper. I love seeing that boat out on the water, just the legacy of that boat and that era. We've talked a lot on this podcast about Title IX and about how things were possible because of that, but then also the incredible empowering force of the women that started rowing then. 
in the 70s and made our sport possible for Rachel and I and a lot of people like us. Yeah, that was the first wave, boy camps and all of that were just on your own buck. You slept on a mattress you might have found on the road and we learned about each other enough to say, oh, I saw this job in the want ads. There was no internet. But I bet, you know, from what I've learned about you, this might be the job you should apply. In 76, which was the first women's rowing in the Olympics, it definitely was amateur. You did not get any kind of stipend until you were, well, invited to the camp. You were put up in a BU dorm and fed at the dining hall there, which, you know, that's, that was a lot of, of a lot of value. And then as you got cut or you decided decided to leave and, and try out for the pair because my, my partner had been cut and she had no chance after that. We had confident. So I said, look, I got to do this in the work. But at any rate, we didn't get a stipend until we had won the trials, which was like two weeks before the Olympics. And that stipend was yeah, a couple dollars a day. That was it. We still yeah. were paying rent and still doing our little jobs and whatnot to keep ourselves yeah. low. I mean, all the way to today, that's a real discussion. I think the national team athletes are still struggling and still needing financial help. I think so. It's just something that we just took on. When we were, yeah. or we had this little tiny closet for a locker room. We were the most successful program at Vesper in the 70s. And it had a little beat up old metal shower compartment. And if someone was sitting on the toilet, you couldn't get up at the same time someone was getting out of the shower. <laughs> and a couple of cast off old lockers and, and some really rattle trap old lifting benches to prop your rear end on. And that was it. I don't know. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any complaining about that. That was yeah. just part of what we grew up with. And that was the beginning of the end of all that. All right. So. Well, we're going to delve more into that, but we would love to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how has your past rowing week been? Well, let me preface that with not typical. And that's because I've had thumb reconstruction surgery. I have pretty bad arthritis in my fingers. So I have not rowed since you saw me last in October. I'm just starting to get back on the herb. I'm on no heavy exertion this week because I had my cataracts replaced on Friday, which was by design. I, I, you know, I knew I'd be on the DL for the hand and I knew I needed to get these cataracts taken care of. So at any rate, I will begin rowing again in about two weeks in earnest on the water. So, Sue, to help our listeners get to know you better, we put you through a lightning round of questions we call the hot seat. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Port or starboard? Port. Sweep or skull? Uh, preference? I like the skull, but I don't know yet with my hands. Bow seat, stroke seat, or engine room? Engine room. Then bow seat, then stroke. A head race or sprint race? Sprint race. Uni? Or tank and trowel? Or tank and trowel. Favorite coxswain command to give or receive? Well, enough. <laughs> a lot of people would agree with you. A lot of people tell us that. Thank God it's over. Yeah. yeah. Favorite place to row? Lake Natoma. Can you tell me about Lake Natoma? I'm not sure I've been there. Okay. Well, it's a largely a nature preserve along the edges of it. It's totally lined with trees and beautiful bluffs and bald eagles and occasional otters. The water is, it's fresh, it's snow melt, 
there were often most incredible sunrises and sunsets on there. Just incredible, even when the sky is clear. And I say that because, you know, we have our, our forest fire season and, of course, the skies are incredibly beautifully colorful mm. then. Particulates lake is recessed a little bit. It's located between two dams. So the water released from the upper dam determines how swift the water is. Basically. The, the lanes are very fair. The aquatic center is owned by Sacramento State University, has very nice boat bays, and uh, there's actually a, a large rental program for the public and uh, Sac State students for kayaks, stand-up paddle boards, et cetera. But there's so much room on the lake. It's a seven, easy 7K one way. Nice. Uh, there are three sets of crews that row regularly. So you can have, you know, 12 boats on the water there, Sacramento State women. There's a big, you know, very nice junior program and then our master's program. She quite a few boats on the water once on a Saturday, for instance. Sounds it's, incredible. Uh, it's very popular for regattas. It's probably, possibly the best racing course in the United States, all like say the lanes are fair. We don't have hurricanes, unlike one very excellent race course that we all know of in Florida. I was hoping that Masters Nationals would return to Lake Natoma. And uh, I think that year it went to Oakland. And I thought, mm -hmm. oh, Lake Natoma would be so much more appropriate for that. Next question Best piece of rowing advice you've ever received? Oh, boy. Really hard. So many ways that advice comes to you from so many angles. Yeah, relax. No one to relax and no one to pull, you know, when to exert. Rowing is a balance of parts where you relax and the parts where you exert to make the most efficient stroke. So rather than the whole time, no one to, you know, relax at that moment at the catch and then just put it all on at the end. So balance, relaxation, mm. and uh, exertion of the stroke. And do you yeah. remember who, who shared that with you or who best exemplified that for you? You know, I think my husband. Mm. I used to row a quad with him and the guys. That's how I learned to skull probably 15 years ago. And I would sit in front of him. And, you know, he's not one of these kind, gentle sort of guys. They sort of around people and say, how can you sit in front of your husband with him talking to you like that? He go, well, he knows what he's talking about and I want to learn. So... I don't care. I got thick skin. I, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just, yes, I know him pretty well. So at any rate. And couples always talk about rowing in doubles or, or quads together as being kind of couples therapy in a way. Yeah. We, we've raced in a quad and at the end of uh, World's Quad Race in Blood in 2016 or whatever it was, I had won all of my races and this was my last race. At the end, he he was bowing it, and it was a mixed quad. And uh, he said, "I just didn't want to. We had to win, so you could have a have a perfect record. Nice, <laughs> yeah, have a clean sweep. You know, he's he's a good coach, good rower. And I like I enjoyed rowing with him. And we were we we're going to row a mixed double at eighty. That's what he said. Yeah, that's what our yeah was. Yeah. All right, we have one more question in our hot seat. This is very important. Okay, coffee before. Or after a row? Well, before. Yeah. So, Sue, uh, we want to go back to 1973. What was going on in your life when you found rowing? I was an RA, resident assistant, a person living in the girls' dorm as the manager there. I was a senior in college at that point. I became a fifth-year senior because I had spent a year in Germany and a junior year abroad, and I had just returned. So I was an RA in the girls' dorm, and I always... 
ran. I wasn't fast, but I was, you know, pretty good in terms of the person who's just running around the lagoon, et cetera. And two of the gals on the floor had joined the rowing team and they said, well, you should join the rowing team. You like to run. I mean, because that's what the rowing team did more of it than anything was run. I said, well, they have to be small people, don't they? Because I'd seen the rowers practicing on our little 500 meter within there. And I just, the impression was supposed to be small. And uh, they said, oh, no. And they explained. They said, we come to our workout. How old was the program at Santa Barbara at that point in 1973? How long had the crew been around as a team? Right. I couldn't say exactly, but they started in the 60s when the Oar and Blade group, which was the ladies' auxiliary, the girlfriends of the rowers, all sorts of cute pictures of them because they put on parties and then decided they would like to row too. So I think it was called Boat and Blade was the supportive ladies' auxiliary. Mm-hmm. And so it was sometime in the 60s when, uh, you know, and a lot of things were changing. How would you describe the UC Santa Barbara women's program at that time when you joined it? Well, we were all just kind of a lump of a program, ladies and the guys. And um, we had a variety of coaches who were just students who, I don't know how much rowing they had done, except for just at Santa Barbara themselves, which Mm. the men's program, I guess, probably started in early 60s. So in other words, not very expert but we were a happy group. We had, we had a great time together. We entered races down in L.A. and San Diego in this rattletrap old bus. We did have to get up at 5.30 and then take a, I call it a 40-minute drive up the mountains over the hill to Lake Kachuma and uh, row. And then we get back a little bit before rain, all soaking wet. And again, it wasn't a big program there. Two eights at the very, very most. Or like. One eight and a four. So it was just, you know, more social than anything. Yeah. It sounds scrappy. We had weights and we ran a lot. We did a lot of stadium stairs with the guys. I, I did enjoy that part. I was good at Did you just row that one year? The- uh, it was actually my fourth year of Santa Barbara that I began to row. The next year, I was a student through March to single shop my senior program. And because there was a club, you could keep rowing. It wasn't NCAA, you know, what was that? It wasn't anything like that. So I could continue rowing for the rest of the season, which ended with Southwest Regionals down in San Diego. I graduated. I made sure I had a copy of my diploma embossed and signed that said, yes, I have a degree in biology. And I took that away because by then I was planning on just wandering east. And uh, so I threw my bike and everything on the boat trailer and got a ride down and raced with the team. We had a great time. And um, I had a one-way ticket to Boston and just flew from San Diego with my bike and my backpack. When did the idea to go to the national team and, and become a, a elite rower come into your mind? Probably April of 75 at the Crew Classic because Harry Parker from Harvard came out then to take a look at anybody who wanted to have a look taken after the racing was finished. You could just, you know, hop into these eights that were provided by Zlack, actually. But he's a man of few words. And when I've had my time to talk to him, he said, yeah, you know, you can come out. Well, okay. That that was it. Did you uh, know that Harry Parker was there? And was it clear that he was scouting? Yes. Yes. I Everybody knew he was there. And I was a good rower on our team. And I've always been fit. That has been easier for me than many. I don't know that any of my other teammates in that tryout 
because it didn't result in any lists or anything like that. It was more just, he took a look. He wanted to see what was out here, basically, because all the West Coast rowers that had any kind of experience at all, which for Sweep was just with the colleges, for the most part, were going to be at the True Classic. So he could get a broad idea of what he's, what he's got to work with. Because when it was announced that the U.S. would be forming a women's rowing team for 76, again, the very first Olympics that even had women's rowing in it, he said, I want to be the coach, and it made sense to the Olympic Committee. And so he was charged with the task of seeing what the U.S. had to offer and putting something together out of it. So West Coast, you know, the crew classic, and um, take a look at what he had to work with out there. Harry Parker sees you. He invites you to uh, Boston for the National Olympic Team Selection Camps in Cambridge. Invite me. Didn't invite me. He said, he said you maybe you should go. He didn't say should or anything like that. Oh. He said, you, you can come. Or, oh, you can come. I love that. <laughs> Ron does say something. There was no feeling of what I've been invited. I've been selected. Yeah. So at that point, you'd been rowing for less than, what, two years? Right. And that was common in those days, especially with sweep. There are just no clubs, really, that had women sweeping in uh, Philadelphia, certainly. Vesper, with Gus Constant coaching, had women sweeping. Philadelphia Girls Club and Dislack, but they were contenders. And Lake Merritt, but they're mostly sculling. And LBRA, of course, was sculling. Long Beach. I think Redwood City had a junior team in the West Coast, and that was it. The pool was small. You were a standout. You go to Cambridge for camps. What was that experience like? It was wonderful. It was it's such an adventure. You know, it was perfect post-college adventure. I landed. Um, then I just showed up at the Radcliffe Boathouse. I, I learned that's what you do. And they had a lady, the house Marie, who was the, you know, the house mother there at the boathouse. And she said, oh, hey, you Right. Oh, there's so many young ladies like you arriving. And she said, oh, I've got to introduce you to Linda the Coxon. So Linda's a Radcliffe student. Linda's roommate in the dorm had moved out with her boyfriend and left the dorm key, which was also a meal ticket to breakfast. And so I had two weeks in a Radcliffe dorm with ice and and a key that's breakfast, but of course, we all know that means it's breakfast and lunch because you peanut butter, an extra hard boiled egg, and an extra piece of fruit. And you got yourself a free lunch. And you take it to go. Absolutely. <laughs> right, right, right. At what point did the pair become your event? How did that happen? That just as an aside, that's my favorite boat. I love the pair. Yeah, Laura and I put together by Ted Nash of Penn, a name you probably recognize. And he knew Laura because she was a Penn rower. There was a Penn women's rowing program and postgrad programs called College Boat Club. And so she was a member of that. And they would race in Head of Charles, et cetera, when they first started. And Ted just knew about her. And Joanne Iverson was the coach of College Boat Club, also a friend. And I showed up in town after that first camp year. I went from San Diego to the camp in Cambridge. I did not get selected for the 1975 Red Rose crew. Then the question was, but I want to keep rowing. I'm doing fine. I wasn't dismayed. I got to row at Nationals that year. At, at any rate, so there I was. They said, well, go to Philadelphia to row because they actually have winter club programs for young people, whereas in Boston, it's frozen and you've got to pay all this money 
to belong to, you know, the clubs there. So I migrated down there with Holly Hatton and um, lived with her for a while. And she knew Ted well. She and, and Ted were great friends. So I met Ted the first day I was in the Philadelphia area. So I don't know, Ted decided that Laura and I would be good rowing partners. And he gave us a stealthy pair and a key to the Penn Boathouse and full run of the weight rooms and the old sock box and, uh, you know, anything you might need. He didn't coach us a lot. He, he felt he was our coach once a week or so. We could get some time from him. So he's the one who put us together. If ever met Laura, possibly, because Vesper and College Boat Club were kind of rivals. And, and this is a very small detail, but I'm, did you say sock box? Like there was a box of socks that you could use? Well, they had sort of a laundry thing and old white socks when you're, you know, rowers come in and they're cotton socks in those days were all soggy and most of them lived in dorms and you know they didn't have drying rooms then now all the big nice boathouses have drying rooms from what mm -hmm. i see yeah. total sense if you're going home to it and washers and dryers and people to do all that for you and they had a, a sock box and i think somebody washed the socks or whatever so i never had to buy socks amazing i love that Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Breakwater Realty Group. Daydreaming of new lakes, rivers, and coastlines to row and play on? Consider a home in Maine. The Breakwater Realty Group, brokered by EXP Realty, can help you find your home away from home or relocate to a new primary home with ease. Connect with the team by visiting breakwaterrealtygroup.com and scheduling an obligation-free buying consultation. Maine. It's the way life should be. On the last episode, rowing powerhouse couple David Setter and his wife Sarah Copeland took us back to the day David survived a heart attack at the gym. They shared the philosophy they've developed about coming to terms with erg splits going up with age and learning to enjoy rowing for the sake of rowing. This was episode one in a special series on heart attacks and features bonus tips your boathouse can use to be prepared. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen at studystatenetwork.com slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, could you leave us a review? When you do, it helps our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. In two, we're back with Sue Hooten. That's one, two. So can you tell us about meeting John? Well, 75, 76, I spent totally at the Penn Boathouse. I was not a Vesper person really but i was sort of a hybrid and so i went to various parties and social functions yeah we all knew who each other was so so that's how i got to know him it, it, it wasn't a love at first sight kind of thing and i think we just developed gradually a really mutual we called it our mutual admiration society and was he already coaching at that time yes he had Begun coaching at Vesper out of high school and somewhat during high school. He was coxing during high school, the second two years of high school, for their summer men's teams and was recognized by the coaches there, Dietrich Rose and so on, as being, you know, an extra good coxswain, someone who was very knowledgeable and perceptive and um, not just a go faster, you know, do you want to go faster? <laughs> you know, he could, he was very perceptive. So at any rate, when, uh, they need a coach at some level, and they said, Hooten, you're it, even though he's like 20 years old. 
So that kind of segued into replacing the women's coach of the moment, Gus Constant, for 1975. Once they knew that women were going to be in the Olympic team, they knew they needed someone who could be the most likely person to help that happen for most of the Vesper women. So at any rate, he's the smallish guy. We're the same size, but there's a true blue guy, you know, and you, you get to know the family and the whole package. And yeah, I can do this. Well, everything I've seen about John, ironically, he was my nephew's Boy Scout master. So I would hear about John Hooten as the guy on the unicycle. And I started seeing um, the cartoons that he would do. Or, But I think overall, my impression of John was that he was popular and funny and that you guys had some really deep, wonderful traditions as a family. Can you tell us a little bit about John at home? John as a father, John as a, as a husband, and as a family man? He was the parent in the home. I had a reasonable salary, and we had decided early on, you know, three kids. So, yeah, fortunately, you know, the planning and biology and all the powers that be worked out. So we had our first two in Philadelphia while I was in medical school and, again, in residency. And he was still involved with rowing, which was as it should be, because, you know, He's, that's who he was. So he, he'd bring the kids to the boathouse, which was just less than two miles down the, down the street there. And we had a playpen there and he'd go out with the crew. He was actually racing a little bit himself as well as coaching. And he would arrange with the, one of the, we had extra coxswains and whatnot. Whoever wasn't going to be rowing that day, he'd make arrangements and pay them to be the babysitter and um, say, okay, the kid's here. I'll be back at, you know, such and so time. So he just did unconventional things to solve problems, and that included babysitting. Then when the kids had science camps where they go away for four days, I think they take the whole sixth grade class. It's usually moms who are available, but he was one of the dads, and they needed males for the male cabins. And uh, the first time he did it, I, you know, they're glad to see him because everybody knew John. And uh, knew that he'd be great. They gave him a cabin full of the most difficult boys. And, and he had fun with them. Just made it fun and they behaved well and everyone was impressed. I'm really glad that you used the word fun because I was actually just about to mention that. That's something that Tara and I talk a lot about as coaches. Um, we both have coached Learn to Row as well as other levels. But we don't use the word fun often enough. And I was wondering. Rachel and I do, just to clarify. Rachel and I use the word fun a lot, <laughs> which is atypical in yeah. the rowing community, the row, in the coaching yeah. community. You know, there's always this like, you know, it's got to be so it's serious. Work. It's work. Yeah. It's work. Yeah. So I was wondering if you'd mind if I read you something that Coach Mike Davenport wrote about John Hooten. Okay. So. Davenport went on to write um, Nuts and Bolts Guide to Rigging. But before he did that, he said, quote, here was a guy, John Hooten, a super well-respected coach and person in the world of rowing who had done really impressive things. And he was cracking jokes in his cartoons. He said, poking fun at the seriousness of rowers in a serious sport. And the moment I saw that cartoon, it was as if Hooten had slapped me in the face and gave me permission to stop taking the sport so seriously. And that prompted him to write The Nuts and Bolts Guide to Rigging. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'd say, you know, John was quick for a quip. And uh, he didn't yeah. with words. He's a talker. There was like two, two levels to him. There's the, okay, it's, it's fun, but it's serious. 
And it's serious because we like to do things right. It doesn't word win, but it's, things are a lot more fun if you do them correctly and satisfying as well. And there's, there's a pleasure to fun and there's a pleasure to feeling satisfied that you've done something well. So I think that probably factored in as much as, you know, using the word fun that we all associate with ha 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 and whatnot, more satisfaction, want to feel good about it. Fun feels good. Satisfaction feels good. Win, lose, or draw satisfaction that you did that thing right the best you could. He's real perceptive about whatever he does. He also ended up being the most successful swim coach in our entire region, even brought the kids to the San Francisco Bay Area where nobody beats those recreation, the summer teams, the sprint teams. And he does that without even using the word win. He says, this is not about winning. This is about swimming fast. And here's how you swim fast. You swim correctly. So details are things that he could glean. And he would have unusual ways of looking at them too. Like say, he had a number of assistant coaches. He had a team of like 300 people. People just kept joining and joining and joining, just like the Scots. Everything else, because it was just such a good experience for their kids and their families and whatnot. But he had a cadre of really experienced uh, adult swimmers who swam for UCLA and Cal, and they've all been coached over the years. And, and for some of his, his methods and, and advice for how to swim well were not conventional at all, but people kind of hesitated and then realized, yeah, this guy's just got, he's got a fresh look studying this and he sees it. It's not because he has a kinesiology background or coaching swimming background. He barely knew how to swim till he was 13. What was John's rowing career like uh, as a master's rower? He didn't get back into it until he retired or almost retired from swim coaching, which was 2016. He'd go meet up with his buddies or a buddy and, and go row really hard because he always did everything hard, always everything intensely. And then he'd come back and rest. And often there were clinics in the afternoon, swim clinics. So he'd sort of segued into master's rowing that way for maybe two, three years. So maybe 2014, we get again. And um, he was sculling and training for competition. Yeah. In fact, he, uh, the competition that he was training for specifically the day he died was uh, he had been selected by the Marin Rowing Association of the Bay Area to be in their top men's age group eight, which is really something. So he was proud to, to be selected since he's, you know, at first sight, he's 135 pound, five foot, Eight guy. He's not, you know, six foot three solid muscle and bone, but yeah, at any rate, that's, that was what he was doing at the time. He rode in the quad, raced in the quad with local races here. 2012, he raced with Motley Crew at head of the Charles uh, with Dysiacker and whatnot. And two guys out with cardiac problems or something. And they said, well, who knows how to row? And because uh, I was racing then with Judy and Carly and they said, well, who knows how to row? He, he could at least be a bow guy, so light, you know, well, we could do worse. On March 5th, 2018, John was out training in his single on Lake Natoma in Sacramento, training for a race. Can you tell us what happened that day? Well, he was actually with a training partner, John Stroud, good and they were both in singles. So they had, uh, were finishing up, who knows how far they were going, probably 12K would be pretty typical, and they were 
they were doing a hard workout because they were getting ready for the crew classic which is coming up in three weeks, four weeks. And um, it was the final 250, and it was just about 600 meters from the boathouse uh, area. So they were scrimmaging, and John always has to win. He might not use the word win, but if he didn't win, and if his teams didn't win, it was a bad day. He always say, anybody can do anything for 250. Come on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we, we won't know exactly what happened. John, he finished, you know, pretty close together. It's, and John Stroud is presumably gasping. And then you look over and told me, he said, you know, the boat was upside down. There was no movement. Usually if you flip, there's kind of like a thrashing as you pull yourself over the top of the boat hull and all of that kind of thing. And so he, he was able to realize, oh my God, he's either stuck on the boat, but he, the boat wasn't moving, um, or, or the worst. John Stroud's a very strong swimmer. He's done Ironman, and he's also very safety conscious too. But at any rate, he left his boat and dove a couple of times as deep as he could. It was 52 degree water, not so bad, wasn't rushing. It's not windy outside. It was a beautiful day and couldn't come up with anything and realize he needed to get to shore because he was getting hypothermic. And so back to the shore and there was a fisherman. I believe we did not have English as a first language. And, but he was able to convince the guy through the whole scenario, 911. And so that's the person who called 911. And, um, and then uh, it took two days for them to find John. We said you don't know exactly what happened that day. I assume he passed out in the boat at the end of the piece. I did ask the coroner to check his coronaries. They were severely occluded and he had no issues, no passing out or, you know, many, many people end up with a chest pain or something, go to the ER, they get a stint put in and, and they're good to go. My guess is he may have been a candidate for that at home for times in the preceding year he would say my watch said my heart rate was 200 could that be true check his blood pressure his heart rate and and i would say contact your doctor <laughs> but you know it, it never really happened there were times he was saying when he got up he'd be kind of dizzy had rust kind of thing but that was a uh, that was a new development for him over the preceding year and a half maybe and he would also complain, he's just so tired all the time. But he looked at him and what a dynamo. But relatively speaking, he felt more fatigued. I think a lot of us overlook things. And we think, oh, I'm just, you know, whatever it is. I need to change my nutrition. I'm getting older. I don't have whatever it is I need today to feel peppier. And for all I know, you know, atrial fibrillation is also a common thing. And he may have had that if he's standing up and after being quite relaxed, and get up and go, oh, I just feel so lightheaded or dizzy, whatever. And, and, you know, there was nothing on his pulse that I could discern, but perhaps he had an arrhythmia that was triggered by the no doubt intense effort that he was putting into his pieces, including especially that last 250 sprint. And that may have overwhelmed him and mm. caused loss of consciousness, which on earth would have resulted in him falling and perhaps pulling blood to his brain and then, you know, being resuscitatable or actually even allowing him to come too. But when you, when that happens over water, you breathe in water. 
before yeah. you are in control of yourself enough to say, I will hold my breath. So mm. I think he truly passed out while he was above water and then the water finished him off. It sounds like he did all the right things. There were safety protocols in place. The emergency response was as quick as it could be. It just... Yeah. And, you know, we row without life jackets because uh, the ones that you can row with would not have helped him because they require you to be involved with pulling a thing to inflate it or inflating it. That's designed for someone who, you know, gets rolled over by a wave who's totally conscious. So those would not have helped him. I rode with a team in Europe and Zurich, and they were required to wear these these horseshoe-shaped strap in the back, you know, perfectly appropriate. You didn't even feel them, but they were required to wear those. They were all hung up on the wall there. So I rode a whole workout with them, with those on. But again, it, that wouldn't have helped him. And the only ones that would help would be ones that would support his head, which, you know, they, they're big and bulky. You can't, can't row with those. So they're required for boating safety. I think it's cited if you don't wear one. But tomorrow, we just have to accept that there will be accidents that are beyond the control of anyone who is rowing or who is accompanying a rower. Um, yeah. If you have a coach right there with you, they could have seen the color of your shirt, perhaps, as you go down and maybe dive in and get you or hook you if you're unconscious. But We want to make sure our listeners know that this is one example of a lot of what a lot of our listeners are doing, which is going out either alone or with a friend, you know. Yeah. And if he had been wearing one of those rudimentary and maybe there was a moment where he could have just pulled on the little yellow plastic tabs before he really lost it, so to speak. If he, you know, if you should have mentally rehearsed these things before the actual event happens where chocolate never happens. It's conceivable to me that you might think just as you're, whoa, I don't feel so good. I think I'm going to inflate this thing. And, and then it wouldn't support your face out of water, but at least you'd be visible and retrievable by your training partner. So would that be better? Kind of depends. If he's not retrieved within three minutes, then you, you know, I don't want to live on as a vegetable. Let me just, mm -hmm. you know, die with a good looking corpse. That's what he always used to say. It's like, I plan to live forever so far, so good. And I want to die with a good-looking corpse. So it's all these. And when the red lights go on, he would say, when the red lights go on, shut it down. Well, we know that he left behind. I'm, I'm just riffing off of the social media responses that I saw. Everything from Temple University and Vesper and Sacramento and the Boy Scouts and the swim team and there was just this huge outpouring of honoring John and celebrating John and helping you and the family, I would hope. It was amazing. From a selfish standpoint, it remains wonderful for me because I still have the social contacts with all of those groups and I stay involved with them, scouts. And uh, we couldn't get the unicycling group to continue really, though. I do keep in touch with some of his unicycle friends and vice versa. The swim team people still speak of John there. I still get anecdotes sent to me from people from their kids who are away at college. Well, I have one, one more question for you. So you said you are going to see what happens this year with the arthritis in your hands. What do you have on your plate for rowing for 2024? I, I row regularly with Masters International. That's a great fun 
program. And it's, it's fun because all the different nationalities. So I'm, I'm signed up to row in uh, Brandenburg, Germany in September. It's always the weekend after Labor Day. So uh, you just row in the boats that you're assigned to with whom you are assigned. And I've had some wonderful rows with Bulgarians and Polish and British and French and it's a whole lot of fun. And then Jackie and I, Jackie Snyder and I row the pair. That's my current pair partner. I've had a series of pair partners and we've always done really well. I'm not really a racer, like, where, you know, it's yeah. more like one stroke at a time, one portion of a stroke at a time. Do it right, do it right, do it right, do it hard, stay in shape. We're all talking about what to do. You know, maybe go to nationals. Oklahoma City doesn't hold much for me, but maybe Northwest Regional second. Lowell, Oregon. And uh, we always do the River City uh, Rebellion. I recommended that you talk to Joel Griffith, who has conceived and executes this incredible small boats tournament. You race three times during the day, and the day only lasts till about one o'clock. There's usually 65 entries. You're uh, given a handicap based on whatever information you can give, but it also includes your gender, your age range and your boat class and you mm. might race with a 26 year old in his single a mixed double maybe a, a double of 40 year old women and a double of 50 year old men and boom you go then you wait for a bit and then he reshuffles it uh based on results and there'll be you know six or seven heats again of everybody so the faster and faster boats handicap wise get started getting matched up and Everybody has a good time, and it's right here in town in Sacramento. Well, good luck to you this season. We'd love to check back in, see how your hands are treating you, see how racing goes this year. And really, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, you guys are doing a great job. Honored to have been asked to do this. It's it's really, really nice. Thanks, Sue. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Because there's always more to learn about safety and preparedness, we tapped Tom Rooks, U.S. Rowing's Director of Safeguarding, for top tips that coaches, rowers, and teammates can use when there's an emergency on the water or around the boathouse. Hi, I'm Tom Rooks, the Director of Safeguarding for the United States Rowing Association. We're talking today about how to be prepared for the possibility of a medical event, heart attack, when you're rowing alone or with somebody else. I row alone myself, not quite as often as I would like to. But when I do, I take special measures. I always have my life jacket on me. And if I'm alone, I make sure it's clipped around my waist. Anything I can do to reduce the amount of steps between me and flotation could be the difference in saving my own life. A life jacket is whichever one you're willing to wear. Even if you just put it in front of your shoes or somewhere else in the boat, having it with you could be the difference between life and death. When I get in the water or if I feel anything awkward in my body beyond just the soreness I'm hoping to have there after my piece is undoing, I inflate a life jacket. A CO2 canister is a small price to pay to make sure I don't end up underwater. If you're with a friend and something like this comes up, it's the same response, except they can help you. If that means you're in the water and you, for whatever reason, can't get back in your boat, put yourself over their boat. Their boat will float. Stay there with them. Stay there with your friend if you're the person rendering assistance. Still inflate a life jacket and call for help. A basic rule of thumb I like to follow is if I can't get into a boat or if another person can't get into a boat after three attempts or if in any way they seem less than lucid or fully functional, I call for help, I get to help. 
There's no reason to just keep trying with decreasing result while somebody is struggling with a medical problem. Get the help. When you're rowing by yourself or with just one other person and there's no safety boat around, one of the keys to your safety is having someone else know where you plan to go, when you plan to go there, when you'll be back, and how to get a hold of you. It's as simple as that. File some sort of plan with anyone you trust that'll look out for you, and you'll greatly reduce the time that help will come if help is needed. Number one thing in a search and rescue is the accuracy of a last known position, by the way. The absolute biggest factor in whether or not we save you is how accurate do we know the last place you were? Because it doesn't really matter what kind of boat, doesn't matter how many people. The, the main point is, do we know where they were last and when was that? And that tells us everything. If we're rowing alone, there are going to be times we might need help and you don't want to have to row for that help. As fast as you are, they may not get there in time. A cell phone in a waterproof case, any VHF radio, there are plenty of ways to communicate with technology that we have. For additional information, reference our U.S. Rowing Safety Guidelines, where we lay out exactly what equipment you should bring. Thanks for all you do to make our sport safer. Row safe out there. To see photos of Sue and John Hooten and get links to the people, clubs, events, and resources mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Thanks to our patrons, whose support helps make this podcast possible. Join our team for as little as $5 a month at steadystatenetwork.com slash Patreon. Steady State Podcast is sponsored in part by Rosource, providing creative design and digital marketing services for clubs, organizations, and regattas. Get the help you need at rosource.com. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Yes, we should definitely tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, and deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. So we hope you'll join us Friday mornings at EDM West 11 East live on Instagram. Grab your favorite mug and be a part of the conversation. And sometimes we all need buddies to help us get through long workouts on the ERG. So we lead Steady State Sundays once a month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. Join us on the third Sunday of the month until March. When folks sign up for this free 60-minute virtual ERG workout, we provide cues and insights to keep them motivated along the way. Register at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Sunday. Join us for our very first book club event on March 24th. We'll delve into questions about lessons in chemistry, like just how tall was Calvin? Why did Elizabeth and Calvin row a pair instead of a double? How long into the pregnancy could Elizabeth erg? This event will be one day before we interview author Bonnie Garmus for Steady State Podcast. So bring your questions for Bonnie and we'll be sure to pass them along. You can register at steadystatenetwork.com slash book club. This episode was written, produced, hosted, and edited by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Tara provides additional audio engineering and is our sponsor coordinator. Rachel manages our website, social media, and e-newsletter. Our theme music is by Jonas Hipper. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Steady State Network. You can also find Tara at Seize the Ore and Rachel at Rosource. In two way enough. That's one, two.